This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. That was a funeral dirge for Chewbacca the Wookiee, who died this week. Jay and I are dedicating this episode of This Week in FCPA to that most beloved Star Wars character, Chewbacca the Wookiee. Farewell, Chewie. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. Some of the top stories we take a look at this week include the new guidance released by the Department of Justice, the speech by Brian Benkowski, where he delivered the goods on compliance programs. We consider why GDPR may be like sex education. For those of you who remember high school, it will be a fun recollection. Credit, Credit Suisse is in more trouble. Compliance Week premieres a new website. Managing third parties is where the rubber meets the road. The uh, EBA ends its investigation into the Donske Bank scandal. What's the nature of social work? We consider the four stages of a compliance program as articulated by Veronica Martinez and the tribute we both have to Peter Mayhew and Chewbacca from Star Wars. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist back again with Mr. Monitor's Jay Rosen. Jay, on the day before May the 4th be with you, I'm sad to report that we've lost Chewbacca as Peter Mayhew died yesterday, but we do have a new FCPA guidance and a lot of other compliance and ethics news from the week. So you want to uh, start us off? Yeah, we've we've got a lot to dive into here. Um, while you were at the ECI Impact 2019 conference in Dallas this week, uh, Brian Benchkowski uh, from the DOJ's Criminal Division released new compliance evaluation guidelines. And as you recall, the original evaluation came out in 2017. It was a four-page document put together by Wei Chen. Uh, looking at different potential questions that the DOJ may look at when evaluating your compliance program. This new document is 18 pages long versus four. It fleshes out a little bit more of the things. 
And the key questions that uh, Benchkowski asks that we're going to go to some different sources to get their take on are with regard to a compliance program, how well designed is your program? How effectively uh, implemented is it? And then does the compliant program actually work in practice? So I know you wrote a couple things about it. Matt Kelly did. We also look at um, some other resources, Jonathan Marks. So I think it tees us up for uh, a pretty in-depth conversation. Tom, did you want to talk about your two-part article? So the... um I guess, uh, first of all, uh, we just finished a recording of Everything Compliance where we took a, a really deep dive not only into the 2019 guidance, but also precursors to it. Jay talked about the Benchkowski memo. Mike Volkoff went back to the 2012 DOJ SEC guidance, and certainly uh, Matt talked about the 2017 guidance. Jonathan Armstrong looked at it from a U.K. point of view. So um, the... Um, uh, we're going to take a deep dive into that. I wanted to preview that. The uh, The thing that struck me about this was a couple of things, Jay. First of all, uh, the one of the themes from the Everything Compliance podcast was continuity, that uh, this document is just one more in a continuous series of pronouncements. And as you suggested, it really fleshed out things that we saw initially in the 2017 evaluation which was a, a document drafted by Wei Chen for prosecutors to use uh, when questioning companies that were under an FCPA investigation. Here, not only we continue to have what the DOJ's thinking is around compliance programs, but we really have a roadmap, or as Sarah Haddon said, a process by which you can lay out and think through not only benchmarking your program, but bringing it up to uh, certainly a, a best-level practice. So within the process of doing compliance or operationalizing compliance, I thought it was a, a very large and helpful step forward for that purpose. Great. Uh, next up, Tom, we have a provocative article, or at least the title's provocative. This comes to us from Bill Tolson Schools and the Corporate Compliance Insights, and maybe you can help us understand why GDPR is like sex education. Once again, on our Everything Compliance uh, podcast, we're able to, to get in a sex angle, so uh, be prepared for that. It's very hot, very hot. And this uh, article, it certainly gets your attention uh, with its title, but even more, uh, I wouldn't even say provocatively, but accurately says that big data is like teenage sex. Everyone talks about it. Nobody really knows how to do it. Everyone thinks everyone else is doing it, and everyone claims they're doing it. And that was certainly my experience as a teenager. Uh, but he uses that, I thought, it's a great way to talk about GDR compliance. And uh, his, his biggest concern is that companies say they know what they need to do, they know what GDPR compliance is, um, and that they are doing it. They believe everybody else is doing that. Uh, but they are really not doing it. So he challenges the reader to think about really the robustness of your GDPR compliance program. He points to the literally mind-numbing number of complaints filed with the EU, the European Commission, since May 2018 when GDPR went effect, of over 95,000 complaints about data, privacy data protection violations. So, uh, he lists out uh, five points you sh should consider around GDPR compliance, and I really urge everyone to 
Not only will you enjoy reading about and thinking about what you thought about sex as a teenager and what you thought everybody else thought about it and everybody else knew about it and how you didn't know anything, but um, it may turn out that that's actually prescient around um, GDPR compliance as well. Gotcha. So next up, we have a story from Rick Messick in the Global Anti-Corruption blog, and uh, Credit Suisse is in more deep trouble over a tuna boat scandal. What's happening there? So this is the ongoing tuna boat scandal in Mozambique where uh, corrupt government officials uh, uh, put together a $2 billion bond offering to help actually increase the tuna boat fleet in Mozambique. That noted tuna boat um, tuna exporter, uh, Charlie, please close your ears if you're listening to this part of the podcast. Um, hopefully it's not any of your relatives. But um, uh, bankers at Credit Suisse have been uh, charged criminally. Uh, for bribery and corruption. I believe they've been arrested. I don't think they've been extradited to the United States, but it's a huge scandal. In Mozambique, uh, the the government and the uh, the country in the form of the government actually went to the Credit Suisse Forum of shareholders to complain about Credit Suisse lack of oversight, lack of robust controls, and allowing this basically to happen on their watch. Uh, this was not a... Um, enforcement action in any way, shape, or form. But it's certainly another method we've seen, Jay, that companies find themselves negatively in the public eye, with, which is naming and shaming. And here you have the government of Mozambique doing so in a very public forum, but also I found a very appropriate forum. This was not, you know, a snicker tweet. This was directly at a shareholders forum. So, you know, kudos to the Mozambique government. They're obviously going to keep the pressure up on Credit Suisse, whether Credit Suisse faces itself, the corporation faces criminal actions, is certainly going to be open uh, question for some time. But here, um, uh, certainly uh, making Credit Suisse uh, have a significant reputational issue to deal with going forward. Great. Next up, um, we've got an article um, from our friend and colleague, Dave LaForte, over at Compliance Week. And uh, it looks like they've upgraded and updated the website. So what do folks have to look forward to on the new website? So uh, first of all, full disclosure, I write and produce a podcast for Compliance Week. Uh, This was one of Dave's signature projects. Dave's been on board a little over a year now as the editor-in-chief of Compliance Week. This was one of his major goals. And Thursday of this week marked an important milestone for Compliance Week, literally a culmination of months of planning and building a customized digital platform. It's uh, Dave uh, wrote a, a really great article about it. Uh, it is not a redesign because it goes much deeper than that. It has uh, new features available to Compliance Week subscribers, including personalization. Uh, there are three subscription tiers that you can take advantage of. There are bi-monthly special reports that will be smartly packaged in new formats. There are new tools for subscribers. Uh, there are benefits for simply registering. And uh, as one of the things that we've talked about at some point, uh, uh, at some length, I should say, uh, there are enhanced metrics. So it gives us at Compliance Week uh, greater user information to see what users are interested in going forward. I urge everyone to go over and uh, check it out. Uh, there's, uh, If you're not a subscriber, there are ways you can uh, do so on a complimentary basis. But if you are a subscriber, get in. Uh, you're going to have to reset your password. Uh, but even I was able to do that. So that tells you uh, how straightforward it is going forward. Uh, so next up, we have an article from Mike Volkov, which is on the Navix Global's 
Ethics and Compliance Matters website. And taking a look at managing your third parties is where the rubber meets the road. Uh, Mike says that there is something in a name and more people in the compliance industry when referring to third party due diligence are labeling it third party risk management. And Mike likes that because it's more accurate. Uh, he talks about different levels of doing your third party risk management and the two things that you're seeking when you are doing management of your third party's risk is to get consistency and predictability. And in terms of consistency, Mike talks about, especially when you're doing due diligence on a high risk, but also a high profitable segment of your business that you need to be consistent and you can't shy away from employing the same uh, same level of diligence that uh, is required. So uh, Tom, excuse me, Mike feels that by changing the name, when you're looking at third party risk management, this is a continuous process. You don't do it just once. And then, as we said before, to be consistent in the application could lead to better predictability. Uh, next up, we're taking a look at the European Banking Authority, and they have ended their investigation into Danske Bank. John Rausch comes to us from the Dipping Through Geometries. Uh, on April 16th, a decision was made by the European Banking Authority's Board of Supervisors to close their investigation into the Danish and Estonian Financial Service Authority's oversight of Danske Bank. Uh, basically, a 45-page draft internal memo was issued by the Board of Supervisors and reviewed the period from 2007 to 2014. The draft specified four breaches of the EU law and how Danske Bank was supervised by Danish and Estonian authorities. However, the European Bank, in an April 26 letter to the EEC, the European Commission, stated that the draft report had been rejected conclusively. So this is uh, really not a good outcome at all because this uh, investigation has been going for a while. Uh, the EU, or rather the EC, uh, may be able to take up some type of uh, protest, but as a practical matter, the EBA board's decision is more likely to harden resolve by both the EU and the European Commission leaders to pursue the creation of an EU-wide agency specifically charged with anti-money laundering, oversight, and enforcement, and this could prompt further skepticism in Brussels about the EBA's ability to oversee its member states. So, Jay, I just wanted to add that this decision, uh, it just – it's absolutely pathetic. It's absolutely abysmal. Uh, even the EU itself was up in arms over this. But the when European banks complain about U.S. regulators overreaching, this is the reason. Uh, the EBA, the, the EU entity in charge with regulating banks, wouldn't even issue a report over what's clearly was uh, money laundering, but money laundering that was uh, known within the organizations at question, in question and certainly violations of their internal controls. So if the uh, EU and its member banks want to move away from robust U.S. Um, enforcement action, they've got to be able to uh, at the very least issue a report. I mean, this is just kind of uh, I wouldn't say catch-22 because it doesn't rise to the level of great literature, but it certainly is fiction. 
All right. Next up, uh, we have a real interesting article that Tom found this week. Um, it comes to us from the Analyst Syndicate, which we link to in the show notes. And sorry to butcher your name, but it's by Bard Papagage, I would say. And it asks us to consider the social nature of work. And uh, I really like this article because it talks about initially why do people work? You know, that's the uh, typical things of trying to pay, you know, make money to pay for your family, to pay for your house. But uh, the author asks, are there more intrinsic reasons for us to work? And besides those uh, economic aspects, you know, what do we derive from working together? And what is there about us doing social things? And when JFK talked about uh, in his, I think, inaugural speech, he said, we do not do these things because they are easy, but we do them because we're, they're hard. And it looks about these are the things to consider about working together in groups and why we derive satisfaction from it. First of all, uh, the author suggests that we challenge our assumptions and critically explore everything we have believed and assume about money, values, power. Next, we should reconnect with our social core. We are a social species with a deep need to belong and to contribute, and that's one of the reasons why we feel good when we're part of a team and we win. Uh, we should dare to be different. The current system of thinking has evolved over centuries. Its underlying belief system is so ingrained in the fabric of society that anyone who dare to challenge it will be seen as potentially strange or deviant. We need to find the true value of doing this work, and we need to close the loop of our economic way of thinking. And it's really not a value chain that we create but it's a value loop that we create when we work together. And the last thing uh, we talked about this most recently on our podcast is how you redefine success. So now success is a matter of both value and contribution. So I really enjoyed that article and we will link to that. And then the last article up until we get to the second part of the podcast is an article that comes to us from the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance and Financial Regulation. It's a look into complex compliance investigations, and it comes to us from Veronica Root Martinez from the Notre Dame Law School. And she says that there are a variety of accepted understandings, both within the industry and academia, about what is necessary for the creation of an effective compliance program. And it suggests that it may be time for us to affirmatively question certain understandings and assumptions that serve as the foundation for modern compliance program. Uh, she talks about situations like Wells Fargo and GM, where our uh, common thinking has failed to make a difference or to actually uh, curb some of these uh, infractions. So she says in part one of her paper that why, why is the effort to curb corporate criminal misconduct 
Why has it come to rely heavily on self-policing when the organization which contributed to the rise of the compliance function? This part goes on to demonstrate through the use of literature from fields of organizational behavior, the importance of implementing certain structures within the creation of the program. In part two, she focuses on the evolution of the compliance function, and this demonstrates that traditional compliance programs were narrow in scope with a focus of particular subject matter areas, yet the rise of more complex organizations may diffuse departments or complicated organizational structures with a variety of parents and subsidiaries, brought new challenges for compliance efforts. And the last part three sets forth the thesis of the article and argues that firms must focus on adopting, and you'll like this, Tom, process-based reforms that will bolster the firm's investigations into complex compliance failures, thereby acting as a safety net when compliance programs fail to detect. So it's a, it's a pretty good technical exploration, and uh, we link to those notes from the Harvard uh, Law School Forum. Uh, next up, Tom had a five-part podcast this week with David Greenberg, who's a special advisor at LRN on boards and compliance. What did you cover in the series this week, Tom? So, Jay, before I get to that, I want to go back to your prior article on complex compliance investigations because uh, it turns out uh, Veronica Martinez has written some uh, very interesting works that I think every compliance practitioner needs to take a look at. This paper that we've linked to uh, is a summary of a much larger law review article uh, that she published. You can download the entire article if you're so inclined. But more significantly, it's a part of a four-part series. She breaks the compliance function down into prevent, detect, investigate, and remediate. And this investigative paper of complex compliance investigations is part three in her four-part series. Uh, there are very few law professors dealing with compliance. Uh, you know, they Typically, they'll look at the law or the policy behind the law, but she's really detailing what you need to do for compliance based upon the law, but with a compliance perspective. So uh, it, it's a very good series. Everyone should take a look at it. She really lays out uh, what I would have said is the three steps, but in her four steps of a best practices compliance program as well. On the podcast series, Jay, I was lucky enough to uh, – be able to sit down with David Greenberg. David is a special uh, advisor at LRN. And we did a five-part podcast series on a topic that I think confounds many chief compliance officers and indeed compliance professionals. And that's the relationship of the CCO to the board of directors. So uh, short, uh, once again, uh, five-part series, uh, highlights, uh, blog posts with each podcast, we took a look. The uh, It's based upon an excellent LRN white paper entitled, What's the Tone at the Top, Boards and Compliance? So it really gives you a, um, uh, a well-rounded look of how do you engage a board? What does a board need to know? What does a board need to do? What are the technological uh, tools a board should use and where we're going forward? David is a, a fabulous speaker. He's been and is on boards and has been a chief compliance officer. So he's got a, a really great and unique perspective on all of this. So uh, earlier this week, after contributing our uh, ticket 
purchase to the global um, phenomena of the latest Avengers movie. Uh, Tom, myself, and Sean Friedland from Hanzo got together to take a deep dive into Marvel's Endgame in our Popcorn and Compliance um, podcast. It will uh, hit the air this weekend, so we invite you to have a listen, and it posts on Saturday, May 4th at 6 a.m. on uh, Megaphone, YouTube, Spotify, and the Compliance Podcast Network. So we're definitely looking forward to that. And uh, also, from a cinematic perspective, um, we heard sad news yesterday that Peter Mayhew uh, the actor who plays Chewbacca has passed away, and uh, Tom and I are going to take a couple moments to pay tribute and to talk about our favorite moments with Chewie and the nine-part Star Wars saga. So, Jay, I would just like to say there are two actors who were in every Star Wars, um, Anthony Daniels, C-3PO, and Peter Mayhew, Chewbacca. So uh, that's pretty rarefied company, and I think that's something that – uh, certainly, I'm proud that he did, and I'm sure he was proud of it, too. Um, so uh, Chewie sometimes provided comic relief, sometimes was the straight man, uh, and sometimes was the heavy, or, or at least the, the muscle, uh, and sometimes all three at once. So he was a great character. Everybody loved him. And I have to say my favorite scene, though, was the first time, uh, one of the first times I was introduced to Chewie was in the original uh, Star Wars, now called A New Hope, now called Episode 4, uh, when he is playing uh, what appears to be a game of virtual chess, although it's with live-action characters, with C-3PO. And he gets upset when C-3PO uh, makes a move and kills his king uh, in a very graphic display of death, I would add, um, and shows some pretty hearty emotion and... Um, C-3PO being, of course, the uh, very um, robotic robot that he is uh, and uh, with the English wit, says it was a fair move. He shouldn't complain, to which Han Solo says, uh, Wookiees don't, uh, are, um, are known for ripping people's arms out at losing matches. And so that really <laughs> set it for, uh, for Chewbacca, the Wookiee. Um, uh, what was your favorite uh, Chewbacca or even Wookiee scene? Uh, I think a little bit later on in episode four, there's a bit where uh, I believe Chewbacca is talking to Princess Leia and he's got the disassembled pieces of C-3PO together. And she asks whether or not that he'll be able to put C-3PO uh, back. And uh, he basically lets out another one of those Wookiee yells. And it just kind of struck to me uh, that, I think C-3PO, excuse me, I think Chewbacca is the antecedent of Groot. And both those characters, <laughs> they don't really speak at all. But their emotions, the conversations, their decisions are communicated. And in Chewie's, uh, you know, language, it's all about his grunts and his roars. And Groot's language is even more limited because all he can say is we are Groot or I am Groot. So uh, it made me think uh, in rewatching some uh, scenes today, just made me think about what a great job the first movie did with the sound design, the sounds of the droids and what they're doing. And they were, you know, when you look back on the, A New Hope, it's, you know, it looks like they kind of put it all together with scotch tape and string. 
but they still made it believable with that sound design and what a future could look like. So um, kudos to Peter and, uh, you know, the big guys up top uh, hanging out and doing his thing. Uh, on behalf of Tom folks, Tom folks. On behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 152 for the week ending May 3rd, 2019, the Farewell to Chewy edition. Thanks for joining us and have a great weekend. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. If you love Star Wars as much as Jay and I do, I hope you'll watch one of the original three trilogies this weekend to get a sense of the work of Peter Mayhew as Chewbacca the Wookiee. He was a great character, much beloved, and he will be missed. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week when we have another review of some of the week's top ethics and compliance stories. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist. This Week in FCPA is a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>